Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Deserts have a way of expanding, eating up fertile land at their margins. In China, which is about a quarter desert by area, officials are fighting that sandy push with a reforestation project they call a Green Great Wall. But those measures could be making the problem worse. And no nation provides more crew for the global shipping industry than the Philippines. There are about a quarter million Filipinos at sea right now. They're renowned for being well-trained and willing to work for low pay. But on a visit to where many of them find work, it seems that all that could be changing. First up, though... Mexico's president held a rally on Saturday, what he called a celebration. Celebramos el importante acuerdo de ayer. In the town of Tijuana, near America's southern border, President Andres Manuel López Obrador told the crowd they were celebrating an agreement reached with President Donald Trump, which averted a threatened round of tariffs. En la defensa de la dignidad de nuestro país y al mismo tiempo... He said the dignity of Mexico had been defended, and with great political maturity, friendship with the American people was preserved. Viva Mexico! Mexico avoided the 5% across-the-board levy, due to be imposed today by announcing it would do more to prevent migrants from reaching America's southern border. The deal came as a relief to the business community on both sides of the border. The intent was that of a blunt instrument. It was not thought through on the greater impact it would have. Cesar Gustavo Farrell runs a component-making company. Part of the manufacture happens in Mexico and part in Texas. He says it was unclear how Mr. Trump's threatened 5% tariff could be applied when many companies send their products across the border several times during manufacture. And quite honestly, I don't know how they would have ever figured that out at, at the border with the amount of goods that goes back and forth. Already, the trade war with China has had an effect on companies like his, which import materials from the country. But the instability, the uncertainty of all of these tariffs, starting with the ones coming from China, uh, that leads to uh, uh, uncertainty in what we would do in terms of investing uh, and development and uh, in, in our own uh, business because we're not sure of what might happen. That trade war has been rumbling on for months, with numerous tariffs imposed by both sides. But the way Mr. Trump used the threat of tariffs in his negotiation with Mexico was different. It seemed like an escalation. With China, you could really interpret what the Trump administration is doing is is using trade tools to affect at least some things that are related to China's trade practices. Samaya Keynes is The Economist's U.S. economics editor. With Mexico, the Trump administration is trying to achieve an unrelated goal, 
immigration. I think that combined with the scale of these tariffs is really different. This, this weaponization of tariffs, using them to threaten other governments to do things that are unrelated to trade. And how about the effect of this sort of high-profile spat now with Mexico and its effects on the trade war with China? How do you think those things are connected? If you're China and you've just seen the president of the United States go back on his word and a, a threaten to apply tariffs after he'd agreed a trade deal with Mexico, what's the point of the Chinese making any trade concessions to him, right? What's the point of making any concessions if there's this risk that the president just turns around and tweets out that actually he's going to undermine the spirit of that agreement? How much of a political coup do you, do you think this is? And, and how much do you think it would encourage Mr. Trump to, to negotiate in this way? I think it depends on, on, on why the president thinks that he won. Will he interpret this as a big country bullying a smaller country and that being an effective strategy that he can repeat? If so, yes. I do think that we'll see this uh, being repeated, that he'll use these threats in other countries. However, it's possible that this agreement is basically a political realisation by Donald Trump. There was a lot of unrest within his own party about these tariffs coming on. There were rumblings that some Republicans may actually block his move. Uh, which which they could do. Now, politically so far, that has been very difficult because there just haven't been enough who are willing to go against the president. In this case, the president could have realized that he had overreached and that had he gone through with it, he would have had a battle with Congress and that could have actually weakened him in future. It's not clear why this spat has flared up now, but the president has been angry for months about a spike in the number of people trying to enter America illegally. The number detained or prevented from entering every month has nearly tripled since this time last year. In a way, the center of the dispute lies thousands of miles away from the United States on Mexico's border with Guatemala. People cross back and forth easily over a river that forms part of the frontier, among them a growing number of migrants fleeing troubled Central American countries. Victor Daniel Carranza came from Honduras, heading to America because back home there's no work and a lot of violent crime. President Trump wants people like him to be stopped before they even make it to Mexico. Under this new deal, Mexico will try to do that, but it won't be easy. I've seen what's going on at the Mexican-Guatemalan border several times. Richard Enzer is The Economist's correspondent in Mexico. Large swathes of this border are, are just jungle with... with you know, very difficult to police, very few population centers. And other parts are economic hubs where both sides of the border are crossing regularly and completely ignoring the very concept of a border. So it's a very difficult place to try and seal the border. And this was a, a, an item of contention in the talks in Washington, D.C. this past week, which is that this is the kind of border that, yes, you can strengthen or tighten the border, but you cannot close it off or seal it, as some of the American negotiators were, you know, wanted to demand. So how is Mexico going to address those demands under this deal? It's going to increase the number of deportations. 6,000 troops from the National Guard, which this government has just created, will be heading off to the Mexican-Guatemalan border to try and dismantle 
people smuggling uh, rings and, and operations. There's also going to be an expansion of the Remain in Mexico program on Mexico's northern border. This is a program that allows America to send uh, migrants who have applied for asylum in the United States back to Mexico while their claims are being processed rather than living uh, you know, in, in the community on the other side of the border in the United States. Now, these things are expected to uh, you know, make a dent in the numbers of migrants heading uh, across the, the border into the United States. But if they don't, there is also a clause uh, that allows the United States to re- uh, you know, make additional demands over the coming 90 days. There have been lots of reports that a lot of this deal isn't all brand new. How much of the deal do you think has just been negotiated? I mean, there's actually been negotiations over a lot of the policy questions on the table for a very long time. Um, past presidents of, of the United States, including Barack Obama, you know, when they have asked the Mexican government to step up its border presence, the Mexican government has politely complied. Uh, you, there were some reports in, in, in the American media that the, the, you know, the, the agreements that were announced this week were hammered out months ago in, in secret talks. So it's very, very possible and indeed likely that there was an element of theater, as there often is when, when we see President Trump's approach to, to global diplomacy. How do you think that this theater and these concessions change Mexico's relationship with America? Mexico has been in a real bind with Donald Trump. That's clear to anyone who, who who sees the threats that the president makes. A lot of Mexicans thought that the worst was over when they agreed to a revamp of the North American Trade Agreement. A lot of people thought this is great. We have a return to economic certainty. You know, we can we can all calm down now. This threat of tariffs and the fact that they were merely days away from coming into effect shows that this kind of attitude can't really sustain itself in the Trump era. No deal is too sacred, even after it's been signed, sealed, delivered, promised, agreed upon. Uh, nothing is can be taken for granted when you have a president that looks like he's willing to rent, pull out or renege on deals. And with that, it starts to undermine the trust that uh, is has really been the linchpin of the United States-Mexican relationship for the past several decades as the countries have become closer economically and more intimate culturally and socially. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Thank you. A pleasure. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Much of China is arid. Around a quarter of the country is desert. Its leaders have long worried about desertification, where fertile land becomes sand. And so they've set out to tame the vast Gobi and Taklamakan deserts. Since 1978, the government has been planting trees to try and combat the problem, what they call, with some poetic license, a green great wall. But their efforts may be making the problem worse. I went to the town of Minchin in Gansu province, which is surrounded on three sides by desert. Mark Johnson is The Economist's China correspondent. It's a place that has had many decades of problems with 
sand encroaching from the deserts that surround it. And I persuaded someone to take me on an old rented ex-military truck into the desert. If his uh, 30-year-old military vehicle breaks down, we might die. How much water have you got? <laughs> Locals were planting small trees called saxel trees in the hope that this would anchor the soil and prevent dust storms from whipping through the city like they do every spring. For many years at the start of the communist period, the leadership felt that it was possible to push back against the desert to create more land for more settlers. In fact, in the years since, the deserts have generally fought back. And the problem for many cities in the north of China is that in parts, the deserts are actually approaching. Since 1978, China has been building a great green wall in desert areas of its north. The plan is to increase tree cover in this area of North China from 5% as it was in the 70s to 15%. They say they planted billions of trees so far. The idea is that these belts of forests will be up to about a kilometre wide. Uh, they say that so far more than 300 million people have been involved in this planting work. So this is a big old project. They started it, as I said, in 1978. And the plan is that it will run all the way until 2050. So they've had the first 40 years, but they've only just crossed the halfway point. How is the project going? Is it, is it on schedule? Is it going to plan? Well, the Communist Party likes to say that it's been a massive success and likes to say that it is a good example of how it is able to undertake these multi-generational projects. They're now getting close to their 15% tree cover or so they say. But they're going to plough on until 2050 regardless because there's much else to do. And the government also says that desertified land in China, which includes, you know, true deserts, but also sort of really fragile areas around them that have dried up, these desertified areas are shrinking in China. A turning point was reached in about 2004, and that since then, these areas have gradually been growing slightly greener after decades in which it was said that desertification was spreading in China. Well, this is what the government says. I mean, do you, do you believe that? Is that, in fact, what's going on? So most experts agree that bits of northern China are genuinely growing slightly greener. The big question and the big debate is, is why? For one thing, we now have a, a much clearer understanding than we did in the 70s of how deserts move, of how deserts are naturally variable, and that they can be affected by sort of decadal cycles of weather that aren't necessarily driven solely by human-made climate change. So there's an argument that a lot of the benefits that have been seen in that area are actually due to changes in rainfall, increased rainfall. If you plant the wrong kinds of trees, if you plant the right kinds of trees in too great numbers, or if you plant anything at all in areas that never naturally had trees, you can actually create worse desertification by drinking up all the water and then dying. In concept, the idea of using a, a wall of trees to prevent deserts expanding is not uh, entirely 
a sound idea. So in some places, trees can help protect railway lines and roads, and they can protect some settlements. But they're not going to solve the underlying problem, which is a lack of water. And that's often caused by deeper problems, yes, by climate change, yes, by natural climate cycles, but also by overuse of water, over-farming. Do you get a sense that any of these messages are kind of getting through to the, to the Chinese government, or are they just going to press ahead and, and continue to drop trees in? Well, it's not true to say that the project has not changed, and it's not entirely true to say that this is alien to the people who are carrying this project out. So over the years, there have been more nuanced uh, forms of regeneration. There's been a number of pilot projects, and there have been some areas, the, the least dry areas, where things have been improving. The problem is that the overarching narrative which is sold to the public and which I think still rules within the Forestry Administration is that planting trees is a good thing, that you can boast about the number of trees and that you can talk about forest cover. And that's also easier to fund. There's a clearer route to get money. You can get money for every tree that you plant. It's quite hard to do a U-turn after so many years of promoting this particular kind of project. So that's why, even though all these issues have been raised and even though we're 40 years into the project now, we still hear people saying that the project will forge ahead to 2050 in its original end date. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Every day, hundreds of thousands of Filipinos make the modern world go round. Luneta Park is a large park right outside the old Spanish walled city of Manila. It's where the great Filipino nationalist leader Jose Rizal was executed and more recently it's where the People's Power protests began in 1986 that unseated the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos. Dominic Ziegler is The Economist's senior Asia correspondent. In a street just outside the park, there's a labor exchange each day for Filipino seafarers to be employed in the global shipping industry. Anacleto Coronacion is a 51-year-old sailor. He's at Luneta to find more work. Before he was at sea, he worked a number of jobs on land, as a security guard, a cook, and a construction worker. He says it's a dream to be a seaman. <laughs> Nemesio Erolas has been working at sea for 15 years. He loves the job, but he says sailing is hard at his age. There are something like 1.2 million seafarers worldwide who crew the merchant fleet that brings us everything from crude oil to Christmas toys for children. And of those 1.2 million, something under 400,000, although the number is falling, are Filipinos. So, Dom, why are there so many sailors from the Philippines? Well, the global merchant fleet used to be manned mainly by Europeans and Americans. But with the oil crises of the 1970s, their high wages no longer were viable for shipping fleets. And they turned to the Philippines. Filipinos, after all, speak good English. They have a reputation at sea for working hard. They're also well-trained. I mean, there's a tradition of Filipino seafaring that goes back centuries, if not millennia. Above all, they can put up with the hard grind. Filipino sailors themselves call it 
SSDD, or same shit, different day. I like that kind of attitude to work. Being a seaman is hard, but at least you have a job helping support your family to get them out of hardship. Even though you may have the lowest position on the vessel compared to a land job, it's already considered better in the vessel. It has uh, clearly a large impact on, on global trade. These Filipino sailors are kind of propping up the, the whole industry. What impact does it have back at home? The impact back at home is significant. Now, of course, the Philippines is well known for the number of its people who work overseas. There are something like 10 million, and that's about a tenth of the population. But of those, seafarers are the kind of cream of the group. And they send home about $6 billion a year, which is about a fifth of the total remittances that are sent back home. The, the Filipino seafarer industry has spurned a number of phenomena. One of the issues is what they call ambulance chasing, unscrupulous lawyers who encouraged their clients to make uh, spurious claims against ship owners in hopes of getting large compensation. And there are plenty of lawyers hanging around, mainly like sharks, on the pavements outside Lunetta, who are trying to find clients in this vein. That's why in the past two years, the number of seafarers from the Philippines has actually fallen. There's another reason, which is that amongst the plethora of marine colleges training up Filipino seamen, some also are unscrupulous. It has been possible, for instance, to fake your exam results. It's caused consternation, particularly in the European Union, which has actually uh, issued a warning about the quality of education from Filipinos. There are now countries that offer sailors at cheaper wages than Filipinos. Uh, and there's been a rise of Chinese, of Bangladeshi sailors, also those from Eastern Europe. There's plenty of competition. And it's particularly the older mariners uh, that have found it hard to find a commission. When I say old, I mean those over 50. The market's changing. It was never a, an easy market. Lunetta Park sounds like it must hold lots of secrets from the people who, who work at sea. What other anecdotes did you hear during your reporting there? When seafarers, after a long voyage, land in a foreign port, they will seek a lover or seek solace in sex. It's a well-known phrase of Filipino seafarers to say as they leave the pillow the next morning for their ship, meet me in Lunetta. And as it happens, a number of women, particularly from South America, have taken their lovers at their word and have turned up on the pavement outside Lunetta looking for their lover. It's also fairly common that mistresses and wives meet there and have it out. So yes, the passions, the, the solitudes of long-distance sailing come home to roost sometimes right here in Lunetta. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... 
Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.